right, good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to the well here at STSA. Who's excited to be here today? All right, I'm glad you're excited because I am super pumped up and I am enjoying this series so much. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know we're talking about a series called Family Matters. We are talking about what does it mean to be part of A, the church, but more importantly and more specifically, B, this church. Because we believe that church is not just a church, not just a gathering, not just a Sunday thing. Church is family. Okay, and what we talked about is how being part of this family, it will actually impact your life in greater ways, if you embrace it fully, than being part of your regular family, your earthly family, your biological family. This family, if you embrace it, has the power to influence your life and redefine your life if you would go all into it. And that's what we're talking about. When this church first started back in 2012, we wanted to come up with a very specific definition, certain markers, expectations of what does it mean to be a member of this church family. And we came up with 10 core values. And that's what we're talking about here in this series is our church's 10 core values. This is our expectations of one another of ourselves. All right. So if you've been following along the past two weeks, we talked about the first, we're taught, we have 10 core values. We have five weeks. So what we're doing is every week, we're looking at a core value here on Sundays. And then the corresponding core value, another one in life groups throughout the week. So if you're only attending on Sundays, you're getting half of it, but that's okay. All right. But those who are attending life groups are getting the full story. So let's kind of recap where these core values came from. They come from what I believe are the five pillars of the church. And this should apply to every church. If you look in the book of Acts, you see that with the church that Jesus started, the church that the guys like Peter, Paul, James, John, those guys who knew Christ the best, the church, when they were running it, very clearly had five things at all times. And I believe that you need to be able to take a picture, a snapshot at any moment in time of this church and the members of this church. And you have to be living these five things. So if you do one really good, but you're missing the others, you have to get all five pillars for the church to be balanced. And you remember what the five pillars are? Who wants to shout them out right here? Shout out. What do you remember? Any of the pillars? Prayer is one of them. Fellowship is one of them. Huh? Witnessing or mission. What else? Who? So that goes under the worship and the prayer, okay? So the church would always be, we said number one was fellowship. The church is always together. Church number two is always not just together and country club, but the church is two together, worship and prayer. Church number three, do you remember the third one? We meant to say the third one? Church has to always be growing, spiritual maturity. I'll put them up on the screen because I thought that would go better than it did. That's okay. okay. The church has to always be growing and maturing. You can't just take a picture of the church and if the picture today of the believer is the same as the picture was five years ago, then something's not right in the church. Okay, so if they're not together, something's not right. They're not praying, something's not right. They're not breaking bread, something's not right. They're not growing. Fourth is sacrificing. Okay, the early church very clearly had a strong sacrificing and giving. We'll talk about that next week. And the last one is witnessing and evangelism. So for every pillar, there are two core values. All right, so we're gonna do a super, super, super quick recap. The first pillar is fellowship or community. What was the first two core values based on that one? Shout it out. Limitless acceptance, which says, read it all together. We believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. We talked about how if we are going to be the body of Christ, we have to do what Christ did. Christ accepted first, preached second. People need to know the truth. People need to know what's right and wrong. Absolutely, but they need to be loved first. So we're going to love people to the truth, not truth people to love. And there's a big difference between those two. Second, second core value, which is connected to this community. Who remembers what we talked about? What's the second one? Authentic community. We're getting weaker. That was not a Sunday one. Okay. Authentic community. Read it all together. 
We believe that God created the church to fulfill our relational needs in addition to our spiritual needs. We reject superficiality in relationships with one another just as we reject superficiality in our relationship with God. The key word here is authentic. That when we gather together, we're not just a group of people who sit together and you can only get so far on Sundays. You can only ask someone what they do for a living and where they live so many times on a Sunday. We have to get past that. We have to get to depth. We have to get to sharing life. And that's what this core value is all about. And the, the way we really practice is through life groups. That's the first one, fellowship. The second one, worship and prayer. There's two core values for that. One we talked about last Sunday, one you talked about in life group. Who remembers the one you talked about in life group is what? Transformational, huh? What? Say what? Who? Transformational what? Transformational communal worship. Read it with me. We gather to be transformed. I don't hear anybody except me. Again, we gather to be transformed by the real presence of God in our midst every time we meet. Liturgical prayer is not just a routine. It is life-giving and real. It is the center of our life as a family. We are not a country club. We're not just like bowling buddies. So we're authentically community and we limitlessly accept everyone. And then what? The goal is that we gather together, that we unite together around the presence of God. And we do that every Sunday. We gather around the table of the Lord. We believe liturgical worship is not just going through the motions. Even though maybe that's the way you were raised, maybe you're going through the motions, but that doesn't mean that's the way it's designed to be. And we don't accept motions around here. We, we need something greater than that. And then the one we talked about last week. Who remembers what we talked about last week? Last week was what? Passionate pursuit of God altogether. We don't stop worshiping after we leave the church. We seek to live passionate lives for God, pursuing Him every day through prayer, Bible reading, giving, witnessing, and everything we do. We talked about last week, for those who weren't here, we talked about lukewarm. What does it mean to be lukewarm? And we gave the pleasant picture of vomit. Okay, and we talked about that. The funny thing is, I'll tell you a funny story. My wife wasn't here last week in, in the well. She was up teaching Sunday school. So in our life group, Okay, we gathered and Marianne was leading the life group. And the first thing is, you know, what did you guys learn last week? Okay, in, 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 what, in, what takeaways from last Sunday? So what she said. Okay, and everyone started laughing. Okay, but everyone was so polite. No one wants to say anything, but everyone would say, the you vomit story. Was a, so we talked about vomit last week. If you missed that, go online. Okay, stsa.church slash the well. You'll hear about my wife's vomit. So we talked about last week is about how the goal is not just to gather on Sundays and worship and we're the great, but the goal is to continue that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And what we talked about is that we need both. We need to pray as a community. We need to pray as individuals. If you do the individual without the community, no good. If you do the community without the individual, no good. We need both working together. And now we're to the third pillar. The third pillar is maturity, growth. There has to be a spiritual progression for us. Just think about it in school. If you're in first grade today, like that's okay. You're trying to figure out one plus one equals two. But if like a year from now, you're still in one plus one equals two, and then three years from now, then five years from now, like then you have a learning disability. Okay, you have a problem. And some of us, our, our spiritual growth is stunted. We're kind of at the same ABC level. Like we remember what we learned in Sunday school in like first grade. And then that's kind of where we got stuck there. So spiritual growth is super important. And that translates to two core values. The first one, which we're not going to talk about today, but I'm just going to mention, is Christ-like integrity. And Christ-like integrity says this. Read it with me. We believe that our personal integrity is the greatest reflection of our relationship with Christ. We know that true spiritual maturity is measured by obedience, not knowledge. We know that true maturity is not what you know, it's how you live. Because we all know somebody who talks the talk, but doesn't walk the walk. 
And what this core value says, I see several people nodding. Okay, people were nodding. Okay, hopefully not pointing to the person who's doing it. But you, you all know, because that's the reason why a lot of us stayed away from church for a long time, if we're honest. That's the reason why a lot of your friends don't come to church. It's not Christianity. It's usually Christians who talk the talk and don't walk the walk. So here's my prayer. Here's my hope with this core value. We're not going to talk about this today. I'm just going to mention it. You're going to talk about this in your life group. My hope is this, is if this is you, that you just want to talk and you don't want to walk. You just want to listen, but you don't want to actually do anything. My hope is, listen carefully to this one. My hope is you're very uncomfortable here. Not that you're uncomfortable from day one, because we limitlessly accept everybody. But my hope is that if that's who you are, and you're not really interested in growing spiritually, you just kind of want to go through the motions, and you like the coffee, and you think the preaching is kind of funny, so you're just kind of in it for the entertainment purpose. My, my hope is that after a year or so, that you'll kind of feel uncomfortable. You'll kind of feel like, you know, why is Father Anthony always in my business? Why is Father Anthony always trying to get involved in my life? And why is the preaching always, he kind of, I hope that you feel uncomfortable because here we are a group of people who we limitlessly accept everyone. We absolutely accept everyone no matter where you are, where you're coming from. But because we accept you and we love you, then we want to help you take the next step. And true spiritual maturity has to be progressive. True spiritual growth, just like, again, physical growth. The child who's, who's here and he's goo goo gaga, that's cute. He's here and he's goo goo gaga, that's a tragedy. Like I said, we don't want that to be us. So integrity here is not necessarily what you're going to see in life group, all right, just so we set the stage. Integrity is not about perfection. Integrity is about honesty. You're going to read the story in, in life group about Adam and Eve, and what you're going to see is about how Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they had made a mistake, their instinct was to cover it up, to hide it. No problem here. And true integrity is not about being perfect, because we're all, we're all flawed and we'll all make mistakes, but it's about being honest. And just like a doctor cannot heal someone who does not expose himself and say, this is my weakness, this is my, like you go to the doctor and say, yeah, I have a sickness, but I'm not going to tell you where it is. Okay, like you cannot find healing. Same thing in the church. You cannot find healing unless you're willing to expose yourself and be honest, okay, with who it is that you are. Like I said, y'all going to talk about that in life groups. So I'm going to go past that and I'm going to get to my favorite of all the core values, my favorite, favorite, favorite. The week I've been waiting for is this one. I told y'all when we started this church, we got these 10 core values. I told y'all the story in week one about how God really gave me nine of them and those nine are not for me whatsoever. But then I got stuck at nine after I finished and I said, you know what? I felt God saying, okay, Father Anthony, why don't you play the game with me? Why don't you write a core value? And this is the one. And here it is. Y'all ready? This is a good one. It is faith filled vision. And faith-filled vision says what? Read it with me. We believe in a big God. No, no, no. See, bigs is all caps right there. So when you see all caps, okay, you got to shout it. You got to shout out big, okay? We believe in a big God, and we rely on him to do extraordinary things in our lives. We are not surprised when God does a miracle. We are more surprised when he doesn't. Faith-filled vision is the best of them all. We believe in a big God. And we believe that big God, we rely on him to do big things in our lives. And we are so, we are the kind of people that when God does miracles, we don't even flinch. We're like, oh yeah, that's how it's supposed to go. We're actually more surprised when he doesn't. Now, before you, before we get too far in this, I know what y'all think. Y'all thinking, okay, Father Anthony is like the, you know, ever optimistic. He's like the pie in the sky, head in the clouds kind of a guy. Actually, you couldn't be further from the truth. I am the most cynical person in this room. And I dare you to come and not to show you how cynical I am. I'm cynical, I'm analytical, I'm logical, I'm feet on the ground, I'm the realist in the room. But here's what I discovered about faith. My faith is not based on optimism. My faith is based on logic. And faith has a lot less to do with 
Like every sermon about faith is just believe, okay? Which means what? I don't know what that means. Just, you know, just blind faith and take a step. And you're like, but I have a question. Sinner, okay? Like ye of little faith. Like, and that's how every sermon about faith is. That you just have to just believe. Well, I disagree. And I'm telling you here today, and I'm explaining this to you now, about how my faith is not based on what I don't know, but what I do know. And my faith is not blind. And my faith is not based on a feeling. My faith is based on fact and logic and my analytical abilities. Now, I'm going to show you here today how true faith is not blind like you think. Because I'm going to tell you one fact. One fact. One truth. All right? Upon which my faith is based, and I hope that your faith would be based on this as well. And the truth is very simple. It's almost so simple that it's silly to say. The fact is this. The truth is this. God is not like us. God is not like us. And I wrote there on your handout in my Don King fashion that God is infinitely incomprehensible, inconceivable, and unimaginable. It's my best Don King. He is infinitely inconceivable, incomprehensible, and unimaginable. He is not like us. In the beginning, God created man in his image. And ever since then, man has been doing his best to create God in his own image. God created me in his image, and ever since then, I try to create God in my image. So what we basically do is we mold a God who's just like us. So I can't fix this, so God can't fix this. So I'm cornered, so God must be cornered. So I don't think there's any hope, so God must feel like there's no hope. We make God into just slightly bigger versions of ourselves, And I'm here to tell you that God is not like us, not by any stretch of the imagination. And you've never heard of the Jefferson Bible. You know what the Jefferson Bible is? Okay, I went to University of Virginia, okay, where Thomas Jefferson was the founder. And Thomas Jefferson, no joke, they worship him more than they worship God there. Okay, and people would say, Thomas Jefferson once said, love your enemies. And I'm like, he ripped that off. <laughs> they worship Thomas Jefferson down there. He's like a cult figure down there. Thomas Jefferson has his own version of the Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And it would, on the surface, you could look through it and you say, it's very similar to our Bible. Thomas Jefferson was a son of the Enlightenment. And he had a hard time with certain passages in the Bible, everything that was miraculous. Couldn't get the miracles. Couldn't get the virgin birth. Couldn't get the resurrection. Couldn't get the Lazarus raised from the dead. He loved the Sermon on the Mount. And he loved the, like I said, love your enemies. He loved the teaching of Jesus. But what he literally did, he literally did, cut out the passages of the Bible that he didn't comprehend. And when I say cut out, I mean with a pair of scissors. Like the original Jefferson Bible was a regular Bible with just a bunch of stuff cut out. Anything that he couldn't comprehend and he couldn't scientifically piece it together, he simply cut it out. And the result of that is what's called the Jefferson Bible or what he titled it, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. We're offended by that. We would never do that. Well, I say we may do the same thing without a pair of scissors. We may do the same thing. In that, we essentially turn God into a bigger version of me. So the parts of God that I get, we like those parts. The parts that I don't get, I just kind of apply myself in there. So like, for example, let, let me show you how this works. I'm nice. So therefore, God must be very nice. I get sad when people get hurt. So God must get very sad when people get hurt. I like my kids most of the time. So God must like his kids like almost all the time. And on the surface, it seems right. Like, that's good. Like, I get angry, God gets angry. I get happy, God. Like, that's good. But let's take it a little bit further. 
I hold grudges. Does God hold grudges? So like, I'll forgive you, and then I'll forgive you, and then I'll forgive you, but like maybe the fourth person did the same thing, I wouldn't forgive them. Because it's kind of like a limit to my forgiveness. Like first time, second time, third time, but fourth time, maybe too much. So God probably has a limit, but maybe it's just like, like my limit was four, maybe his is like ten. Because he's just like a bigger version of me. I can't do anything about this problem. So therefore, maybe God can do like a little bit, but probably it's out of his hands too. I would never allow this to happen to somebody I loved if I could stop it. So therefore, maybe he can't stop it. Maybe he doesn't love me. You see where this goes? The biggest mistake you can make is thinking that God is like us. It's the biggest mistake you can make is creating God in our image. Like we were made in his image means we have some of his characteristics, but he is not made in our image. So we cannot take our characteristics and apply them this way. Like they go this way. Like my children are like me. I'm not like them. Okay, I did not pull their genetics. Even if we have some similarities, they got it from me, not I got it from them. But I can't see, oh, there's my child. He's crying. So therefore, Father Anthony must be a real crier. There's this kid. He's making a mess. Father Anthony must be a real slob. I can't apply. I can't take me and create myself in their image. And the same thing comes between us and God. Believe me. Believe me, believe me, believe me. The greatest problem we have in our spiritual life is the limitations we put on God. You tell me your greatest spiritual problem. I will tell you exactly. This applies to every single person in this room. Even the people in the back. Even everyone, it applies to everyone. Okay? I'll tell you exactly how big your God is. Let me tell you how big your God is. I can measure your God. I can measure your God and give you an exact size. You want to know how big he is? He's exactly the size of your biggest problem. That's how big your God is. Because if you say God can handle this, can handle this, but this problem, like this problem, like this is a big problem. You have made God exactly one step smaller than this problem. And that's why we have all these problems in our spiritual lives. Isaiah the prophet tells us this. Here's a great verse. Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. To whom shall you liken me? He's saying, I'm not like, like you want me to be like the king? You want me to be like the governor? You want me to be like the strong? Like who do you think on this earth is like me? Let me show you who I am. And then God paints a picture. We're going to talk about this picture. God says, I want you to lift your eyes up on high. Meaning what? Meaning look out into the sky and tell me who created all these things. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to see what these things he's talking about. I'm going to go through a little science lesson here, ladies and gentlemen. This here is called the earth. You live somewhere on that blue ball called the earth. That is a very small depiction of the reality. I want you to find on that depiction right there of the earth, on either side, I want you to find yourself on that picture. Like, pretend like you were up there and you could, like, draw a circle around where you are right now. And I also want you to draw your biggest problem. Can you see your biggest problem? Like, the biggest, hugest problem. And I want you to put it in perspective of this big earth. Does everyone have their biggest problem? Like, put a pin in it. We're going to come back to it, okay? Everyone can see themselves and see how their big, huge problem and how it's towering over their life and it's destroying their life. Well, let's go a little perspective. Science people will appreciate what I'm about to do right now. So this is here our Earth, but we know that our Earth is not the only planet in the world. Our Earth is part of a solar system called our solar system. <laughs> I was going to say Milky Way, but Milky Way is the galaxy. We'll talk about Milky Way in a little bit, okay? 
the sign stuff is a little bit of a reach for me, so help me out here. Okay? Here's some other planets in our solar system. So just put a little perspective right here. Earth, which is gigantic Earth. Gigantic Earth. Put in perspective of all these things that God created, and you see right there, it got a lot smaller. Does everyone still see their problem? Can you still see your problem? Okay, because God is holding not just the earth, but he's holding actually all these planets. He's holding them all in his hands. So can, can you still see your problem in, in, in perspective? Well, actually, you know what? These planets pale in comparison to something else in our solar system called the sun. So there's the sun. And remember how big Jupiter was a minute ago? Jupiter got a lot smaller okay, when you put it next to the sun. And again, where's the sun? Still in the hand of God. And then where's the earth? Oh, yeah, that little booger right there at the bottom, bottom of the, the screen. That's the earth. Does everyone still see their problem? Their big, huge problem that God can't solve? You still see it? Let's keep going. Our sun is not the only bright sun in the entire universe. There's other suns. Here's one called Arcturus. And you see what Arcturus did to our sun? He squashed our sun. And you see, where is Jupiter? One pixel. And where's the earth? Can't even see the earth. But can you still see your problem? Still see your problem? Because God sees all this stuff. You still see your problem over there? Let me tell you about Arcturus. Arcturus is a bright shining star like the sun, that bigger, that much bigger, 36.7 light years away. 36.7 light years away. Let's round down to 36 years, okay? 36 light, or let's go up, 37, okay? 37 light years. You know what 37 light years means? A light year is the distance, science people, help me out if I say this one wrong, that light travels in a year. And light goes, if I turn on that light from all the way in that corner, it goes all the way over there like that. As soon as I turn it on, it goes there. If I turn on a light on top of the building, the whole city can see it in no time. If I turn on a light called the sun, how long will it take for me to see the light down here? Eight minutes. If I turn on a light called Arcturus, it is so far away, it'll take how long for me to see the light? 36 years. Which means that if I were today have a camera that could actually take a picture of Arcturus with a camera, the picture that I'll be getting would be looking into the past 36 years. Because that light would have traveled since... 1987. And then if I want to send the light back, it'll take another 37 years to go back. And that's Arcturus. And then where's that? In the palm of his hand. Let's go one more. One more size up. See how big Arcturus is, how the sun? There's another, I don't know where they come up with these cool names. Okay, there's one called Beetlejuice, apparently, and one called Antares. Okay. Let's talk about Antares. It was a great movie. It deserves a, it deserves a star named after it. Antares. I told you Arcturus is how many light years away? 36. Antares is 619.7 light years away, which means light, if you turn on a light from Antares, by the time it gets down here, it takes 619 years. That means if today I send a light beam from here that can shoot all the way up there, it will arrive when? Year 2637. You still see your problem? Can you find it? You know, the big one, the big one that can't be solved, that like God is like, oh, I don't know what to do with that problem. I don't know what to do. I've never had anything that big in my life. You still see it? I've never heard of the Hubble telescope. Hubble telescope launched in 1990, a big, basically a big camera that goes around the earth and takes pictures of the solar systems and the galaxies and all kinds of planets and stars and all that kind of stuff. A scope that moves so fast it moves at a speed of five miles per second traveling around the Earth. Do you know how fast five miles per second is? That means you could go from DC to LA in 10 minutes if you were traveling at that speed. It travels at five miles per second because that's how far it's launching out. And it takes pictures of far, far, far away places. 
And here is one of the famous pictures I took of one of the furthest galaxies away, or furthest pictures of, far, of faraway galaxies. See all those bright, shining lights? Do you know what each of those is? It's not a star. It's a galaxy. Each of those shiny things is not a star. It's a galaxy. And one of the dinkiest, dinkiest ones, the smallest, puniest ones, the ones that like all the other galaxies pick on this galaxy and say, you dinky little galaxy, you go to the back. You're not worthy to be a real galaxy. It's called the Milky Way in which we live. It is so minute. You know, in this picture, there are more than 3,000 galaxies just in this one little picture right here. And our Milky Way galaxy, the smallest of them all, has the following. Here's some facts about it. It is 100 to 180 light years in diameter. The diameter of our piddly little galaxy is 100 to 180 light, 1,000 light years, not 180, 180,000 light years. It means to go from one end to the other could take you 180,000 years if you're a beam of light. In our galaxy, there are more than 100 planets and more than 400 billion stars. You still see your problem? You see the big problem? You see, so often we think God is small and the problem is big. But this core value has actually got it all backwards. God is actually the big one. And everything in his hands is small. Let's read this verse again, maybe a little bit of perspective. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. What we want to talk about today, what we want to talk about today, as we want to figure out how to turn that knowledge. Okay, the core value for your member says we believe in a big God and we rely on him to do extraordinary things. So how do I turn knowledge, big God, which I just showed you, God is big. So now you're like, okay, God is big. How do I turn knowledge of God is big into practical of I rely on him to do extraordinary things? How do I turn the knowledge into the faith? That's what we want to talk about right now. And we're going to get a little help from a man named Joshua. And we're going to see the story of Joshua about how Joshua went through a tough situation, okay, but how God came through for him in a big way. Now let's get that verse, okay? Joshua chapter 1. For, for, for those who don't know the story of Joshua, we're going to run through it kind of real quick right here. Joshua was a guy who was successor to Moses. Moses had some pretty big shoes to follow because Moses took the people out of Egypt of slavery and he brought them to the brink of the promised land. But God said to Joshua, you're actually going to be the one who actually takes him into the promised land. He says this. We're going to read this stuff quick, okay, just to get a context. Joshua 1.1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness to, and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. These are beautiful promises, right? No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to, you, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. This sounds very nice. This is a beautiful word. And if I'm Joshua and I'm sitting doing my quiet time by the river, I'm like, yeah, this is, God, this is great. It's beautiful. But then what happens when these words, you stand Joshua, fast forward the story, Joshua miraculously crosses the Jordan River and he pulls the people right up to the walls of the city, right up to the walls of Jericho. And Jericho is one of the strongest cities in the world, in the empire right now, 
and they have a strong army, and they have really, really high walls, and they're at the top of a hill. So, Je so Jericho has a lot of advantages. You're Joshua. You're leading what kind of an army? A no-army army. You have no weapons. You have no training. All of your men were born in the wilderness. Wilderness isn't where you train soldiers. It's where you train shepherds. They got weapons, you got shepherd sticks. So you're going to like throw your sticks at them? Like what's the strategy here? They're high up and they can just throw stuff at you and they can use their weapons. You got nothing. This should be a blowout of epic proportions. Here you have Joshua who rolls up upon the walls of Jericho. And he's sure that by the time I get there, if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking by the time I get there, God's got like a really cool plan. Like God's going to have a really cool plan. Like look at all this stuff he's saying. No man shall stand before me. So I'm sure, like, I'm going to get to the walls, and there's going to be, like, boom, like, 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 like weapons. It's going to be, like, M16, something like that. Or maybe, like, God's going to invent the first, like, like, a nuclear weapon. Or maybe, he, like, he's going to invent a helicopter. Or, like, I'm just going to be, like, big and buff. Like, what's going to be? When I get there, I'm sure God's got something up his sleeve. Ready for God's great plan? Ready how God's going to just, like, totally wipe out this strong city through Joshua? Here's a great strategy. Joshua 6, chapter, one, chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and its mighty men of valor. Great God, that's why I'm here. You gave him into my hand. What are you going to do? Like, what's the strategy? Like, what are you going to drop a bomb? Like, what are we, we going to do? We're going to knock him over with that. Like, what are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. Okay? And then what? You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. And it shall come to pass, when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Who's pumped? Let's go! We're going to knock this city down by how? By picketing outside it. By saying, we would like to come inside there. And they're up way up high with their strong men and their weapons. And we're down here with what? A trumpet? A horn? And who's leading the cavalry? The most worthless people? The priests. Who never lay a finger on anything. They're just there to just pray for people, okay? How excited would you be if you're Joshua? What would you say if you're Joshua? If you're Joshua's men? You'd say, hey, Joshua. We got big problems here. Joshua say, no, but we got a big God. Leave your big God stuff. Like, that's nice for the quiet time. We got real bullets flying now. You know what I think Joshua would have said? I think Joshua would have said, we believe in a big God. And we rely on him to do extraordinary things. And men, women, we are going to be more surprised if he doesn't answer our prayer and doesn't do a miracle than if he does. I think that's what Joshua would have said. And he probably would have been saying it kind of shaky. And maybe the people wouldn't have believed. But whatever Joshua said convinced the people that, you know what? Let's give this funny strategy a try. And that leads me to two conclusions, okay? Two conclusions. This is how we're going to turn big faith, big, uh, a faith in a big God and to rely on him to do extraordinary. Two things. Two things that we need to do. Number one, we will challenge assumptions you want to have faith-filled vision, you must learn to challenge assumptions. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that 
Joshua, you need an army to defeat a city. Says who? Joshua, you need tools to knock down a wall. No, you don't. Joshua, you need a ladder at least to climb over the walls. Nope, I don't think you do. I think that the people who God worked the most mightily through were the people who had the least assumptions in life. Moses made an assumption that you don't need a bridge to cross the sea. Peter made an assumption that you don't need a boat to go on top of the water. A little boy made an assumption that you don't need 5,000 pieces of bread to feed 5,000 people. A group of servants outside of a wedding made the assumption that you don't need wine to make wine. I told you all at the very beginning that our primary identity is members of the church. And I told you at the beginning of today, I said it last week, the week before, that, that the being part of the church will be the defining characteristic of your life and it's never more true than for this core value right here. Because being a member of the church says that we are not by ourselves. That we are not fighting one-to-one. -one. This is not a one plus one equal two situation. This is me, not me against you. This is me and God, which means me, me nothing, God everything, me and God against whatever problem is in front of me. So that's what I'm saying is if you embrace this, your life never gonna look the same. It's never you on your own anymore. It's never you in your house on your own. It's never you in your job. It's never you on your own. It's me plus the one who thinks the dead people should be raised from the dead. It's me plus the one who thinks that blind people should see. Me plus the one who thinks that walls can fall down without a single weapon. Just a shout. It's me with the one who redefines what is possible. Let's go back to Joshua, verse 12. Joshua rose early in the morning. Joshua was a man of faith. He had faith-filled vision. He rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. What do you think they're thinking? Put yourself in their shoes. We're going to just march around the city and blow the trumpet. That's what they're thinking. Verse 14, And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. So Monday, marched around once. Thank God no one shot us. We got back alive. Second day, marched again, getting ducking, get back alive. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Joshua, this plan is not working. We've been doing it since Monday. It's now Saturday. It's a stupid plan. We need some better plan. Joshua's like, okay, I got the best plan now. The seventh day, we're not going to march around once. Thank God, we're going to march seven times. So we really annoy them. And we really give them a, sh a chance to aim well. Like maybe they couldn't aim well in those first, so we're really going to give them a shot to destroy us. Verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time, I love this. On the seventh time, say it with me, on the seventh time, it happened. You know what that it happened is? You know what it happened is? It's what you're praying about right now. It's what you don't believe God can do right now. It's the problem that you don't think he can fix. It's the relationship you don't think he can reconcile. It's the sickness you don't think he can heal. It happened. It didn't happen the first day. It didn't happen the second day. It didn't happen the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day. And I bet you some people, you said, you know what? Enough. I'm, I'm done trying. I don't think God's going to ever do it. And they walked away from a miracle. And they walked away and said, you know what? It's never going to happen. But no, it happened. But the question is, did you stick around long enough to see it happen? It happened on that seventh day. 
it happened when the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 20. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets. And again, it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And you all know how the rest of it goes. Logic, walls don't fall from marching. Logic, cities with armies don't get destroyed by cities with shepherds. Logic, you need some kind of weapon to win a war. We will challenge all those assumptions. And what you and I will say, faith-filled vision, you will say the following. I got you a good verse if you want a verse to like really connect with faith-filled vision. It's Luke 18, 27. Let's say this together so we all engage in this. Luke 18, 27 says, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Let's say that again. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. One more time so it sinks down deep inside. You say it. The things which are... What do you need to say this to? What do you need to say this to? No, Father Anthony, marriage can never be fixed. The things which are impossible to men are possible with God. No, I can never get past this addiction. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I can never break free from these chains that are holding me down. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I agree with you. It is 100% impossible. I'm agreeing with you. So when you come to me and say, this is impossible, I agree. But the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. I'm not saying it's possible. I'm saying it is impossible. But we believe in a big God. A big God. And we rely on him to do extraordinary things. And therefore, we are not surprised when God does a miracle. We're more surprised when he doesn't. We're more surprised when God's like, oh, I didn't know I can do anything about that. We're more surprised when God's like, no, I didn't. I can't solve that. Or when God's like, you know, I'm just going to leave you there by yourself. We're surprised when that happens. We're not surprised when the impossible stuff happens. Because we got God on our side. What assumptions do you need to challenge? What assumptions do you need to challenge? What is it that you're saying is impossible? What assumptions do you need to challenge? What are you saying? It'll never happen. It can never happen. That can never happen. What assumption do you need to challenge and say, wait a minute, the things that are impossible with men, they might just be possible with God. Number two, when you challenge those assumptions, number two, this is the best one. You dream big, you pray bold. You dream big, you pray bold. You dream big, you pray bold. There's a great book on prayer by a pastor named Mark Batterson. I'm sure some of you heard of him before. He, called, he wrote a book called The Circle Maker. We read it back several years ago. And in there, there's two lines, okay, that really changed my view on prayer that he wrote. The first one he wrote is, God honors bold prayers because bold prayers honor God. God honors bold prayers because bold prayers honor God. How do bold prayers honor God? I'm a dad. Every dad, okay, every father, okay, God is the true father. So there's a little bit of fatherhood, which is a piece of God. Motherhood too, but I can't speak about motherhood as much. But fatherhood. As a father, what do I want for my children? I'm going to tell you all a secret. Don't tell this to my kids. My kids think I'm a superhero. Don't tell them I'm not. I like them thinking I'm Superman. Oh, this is broken. No way, Dad can fix it. Uh, the thing, the car is dead. No, no way. When Dad comes, it's going to be okay. My kids think that there's nothing in this world that I can't fix. 
My kids think that there's no problem I can't solve. My kids think that as long as I'm in the room with them, they're not scared of anything. I told you all this story, okay? One of the biggest, like, I'm an idiot stories in the world. Not uh, This past summer, we went on vacation. We went hiking up a mountain, okay? As we're coming down the mountain, I had this idea of, hey, let's try a new trail. So let's try this one. And my wife, apparently, I don't remember, but she apparently told me, hey, there's big red X's on this one. Say, don't go down here. I'm like, no, 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 no. Those are, those are guidelines. Like, I know where I got this. I don't remember her saying that, but she apparently told me that many times. And I'm like, no, no, we got this. We got this. I'm telling you. About an hour, it was like a two-hour thing up. About an hour and a half on the, way, on the way down, we realized this is not a path, okay? And you know that when there is no path, okay? And just trees and everything, like the grass is like this high. And I'm like, oh, no, we, uh, yeah, yeah, we got this. And what we would do as we were going down, like we can laugh and joke about it now. It was kind of a scary situation at the time, but we can laugh now. Is I would say, okay, you guys stay here. And I kind of run off. You know, and kind of see like what's ahead here. And I would just kind of run, okay, and then see, uh, this is not a good way. And then we, and I asked Marianne, what were the kids doing while I was gone? And she said that both kids were pretty much saying the same thing. Oh, don't worry, dad's going to get us down. Oh, don't worry. And neither of the kids flinched. Yeah, I know, that makes me really feel bad, okay? So I'm, I'm not, we shouldn't take advantage of this, okay? We should listen to our wives, ladies and gentlemen. But they, were, they were both like, you know what? Dad'll figure it out. And of course, I had no idea what I was doing. But you know what? I like them thinking that. That makes me feel good. God isn't offended by your big dreams and your big prayers. I actually think the opposite. I think he's offended by your little prayers, by your piddly little ones. When was the last time you asked God to do something big in your life? When was the last time you relied on him to say, you know what, God? This is impossible. But man, I am trusting you to do it because you're a big God. And I think you can do big stuff. When was the last time you prayed a raise the dead kind of prayer? A part the sea kind of prayer? When was the last time you prayed more than a bless me, bless my work, bless my kids, bless those who didn't come this week? Like when was the last time that you had a bold prayer? If your prayers, listen carefully to this one, if your prayers are not impossible for you to do, I believe they are offensive for God. If my kid comes to me and say, Dad, I can't figure out this math problem. Can you help me? I love that. If my kid comes and says, Dad, I can't, I can't start the lawnmower. It's too heavy. Can you help me? I love that. Dad, you know, we can't fix this. The washer's leaking. Can you? I love that. Let's say my kid were to come to me and say, Dad, can you make my bed? Excuse me? Dad, my shoe's untied. Can you tie my shoe? I beg your pardon. Because when you ask me to do things that you can do, then you're not treating me like a big God. You're treating me like a servant, like a slave, like I belong to you. Dad, come make my bed. Dad, come take my plate to the sink. No, you take your plate to the sink. You don't ask me to do what I'm asking you to do. And all of us, our prayers are, please God, raise my kids good. No, you raise your kids good. When was the last time you prayed big things? When was the last time you prayed, I got some examples right here, some things that we pray for sometimes. When was the last time you prayed that God would end it, end the racial divide in our country and heal that? When was the last time you prayed that? When was the last time you prayed that children who don't have health care in Washington, D.C. and have no insurance and no medical care, that God would solve that? When was the last time you prayed that? When was the last time you prayed for that person 
who is the most annoying person in the world and say, God, change their heart and make them a fully, fully committed disciple of yours. When was the last time you prayed that? I think those are the prayers that make God jump out of his seat. Now, I want to make this practical. Okay, and I want to share with you guys something that I've shared with you before, how I make this practical, and something that I do, which is so, it's so beneficial for your prayer life. So this is not really a message on prayer. It's more a message on faith. But I want to show you how I practice big prayers, dream big, and pray big. And I want to share it with you because it's just so beneficial. You don't have to use my system, but my system is really, really, really good. So at least learn something from my system and don't have to do it exactly, but do it exactly, okay? You don't have to do it exactly. But it's really, really, really good. I do something called prayer cards. I don't just stand up and pray because when I stand up and pray, in about 13 seconds, I'm in la-la land. And I'm looking at the lights, and I'm counting the tiles in the ceiling, and there's a bird chirping over there, and I can't focus. So if all it is is like stand up and say prayers, my prayers will be, uh, you know, let today be a good day. Even though every day is like a good day. You know, and let uh, church go good, you know. And there's no power in that. So what I do is I sit down, and I make prayer cards. And I very thoughtfully, every so often, not like every day, like every two, three, four, five months, something like that. I put on a piece of paper in writing what exactly I'm asking God to do. What exactly do I want God to do? And here's the way you do this. You think to yourself through your relationships in life, where do you want this to be in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years? Because we kind of overestimate what we want from God today and we underestimate what we want from God in a year. We overestimate what we want today, fix all my problems. That's not how it works. But maybe over the course of a year, I can strategically pray for something and I can get somewhere. I know that's kind of vague. So I'm gonna give you some examples. And these are personal. These are like real prayers that I have for members of my family, for my church, for myself. So these are actual prayer cards. Now I didn't put them all up there because some of it is very personal, especially when I pray for my children. But I put, put some things up there just to give you an idea of how I pray for my kids. And like I said, how I pray for my wife, how I pray for stuff, okay? My wife is holding her breath right now. Okay. This is my son, Michael. With every every Prayer card has a verse that I pray, and then some bullet points. And again, this is just a, a sampling. So for my son, I pray 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise your youth, but you be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. And I pray that Michael will be a man of honesty and a man of integrity. Not like that he would say the truth tomorrow, but like when he's a man, that he's known as a man of integrity and a man of honesty. That's what I'm praying for him. And I pray that he would be a role model, not just to his friends, but to the whole world. This is my prayer for him. This is a dream big, pray bold, strategic prayer. Not to say like, please help him get through his math test today. My daughter. I pray for her, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless. And I pray that she would always know who she is to God and to me. And I believe there's a link. Dads, I believe, especially with your daughters, that they will always link how God feels about them with how you feel about them. I think that... The girls who have good spiritual self-esteem probably have good confidence in the relationship with their dad. I, I believe that, so I pray that, that she would always know who she is to me and to God, and that God would keep her heart and emotions pure, because I see older ladies, okay? I, I see y'all. <laughs> I mean it in a bad way, but I see how the emotional struggles really weigh so many people down, so I'm praying that, okay? Y'all want the Marianne card? Everyone wants the Marianne card. She's holding her breath right now. I didn't put it all up there, don't worry. I pray this when I pray for my wife. I pray husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That deserves an awe. That, uh, thank you. Uh, that's all I get? Come on. That deserves an awe. Come on. That's my prayer for her. And I pray that we would always be best friends in our marriage. 
Okay, I, would, I don't pray that we'd stop fighting. Okay, I pray that we would always be best friends. Okay, why am I limiting myself to please end this fight? I won't pray that we're best friends and we always have fun in our marriage. And that, that's my goal. Okay, and I pray that we would pray together consistently every single day because that's a struggle for us just like it's a struggle for many other people. That we're not immune from that stuff. Y'all get the hang of how this is going? Not just like, bless me, let me find, let me get married. Okay, so like, you just want to marry like anyone? Like, does it matter? Bless me, help me in work. Like, help me in work to what? Like, help me in work to like, uh, to, to, to get a comfortable chair? Like, to get an, like, what is it that you want in work? What's bless me? Like, church. I pray Acts 2.47, Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. I pray that the spirit of mission would never leave our church. I pray that our church would be a lighthouse for the lost of your sheep, your being God. And I pray that God would always lead this church, not me. You don't think the church got here because we just sat around and said, please God bless church, make Sunday fun. The church is here today because a group of people, not just myself, but I'm saying I'm one of the people, but when people of God pray, make this place transformational communal worship. That's how the church becomes that stuff. You have to pray strategically. You see what I'm saying? The last one, I got my own personal one. I pray for myself. For myself, I pray James 3.17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And I pray that God would give me wisdom and discernment as I lead the church. It would be always his leading, not mine. That God would give me purity of heart and mind. And that ultimately, when I go away, the people would say, this was a man of prayer. That's what I pray. I believe that when you pray specific things, you invite God to do big things. I'll show you this verse right here from Mark eleven twenty three. 23. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Not the one who says, hey, God, can you move any mountain? Like, God, you know, choose a mountain to move. He said, no, 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 no. It's not that just generic. Like, please, God, make my kids the best kids in the whole wide world. Please, God, make me go. No, 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 no. You want a mountain moved, you point to the one you want moved, and you stand in front of that mountain and you pray. Say, God, you be specific. And you call God out and say, God, I want you to move this mountain. So what I'm saying is, what mountain in your life, in your family, in your career, in your side you, what mountain you need God to move? You stand in front of it, and you say, God, I refuse to pray small. I refuse to just dream small. You are a big God, and I rely on you to do extraordinary things. And the way I prove that is by saying, God, fix this relationship. Bring back this lost soul. Bring reconciliation to the world. That same book. Circle maker, Mark Batterson wrote this. He said, the greatest moments of life are when human impotence and divine omnipotence intersect. And I believe that happens when we pray specific prayers. So, with that said, I'm challenging you, members of the STSA family, I am challenging you to have faith-filled vision. Of all the messages in this series, like I'm already over my time, so I'm going to end it right now. I could keep going for another hour. This is my favorite one. I'm, I'm not, but I could. Because this is my favorite one. And this is the one that I believe. That if you can embrace this one, man, this will change your life. Because here at this church, we're not just here for ourselves. We're not just here to like say, hey, let's have a nice church. And let's do, we're not here for that. We're here because we believe that God wants to change the world through us. You say, hey, Father Anthony, like cool. Like you're thinking, I'm not saying through me. I'm not saying because of me. I'm saying because I got a big God. And I rely on him to do extraordinary things. And I believe that God wants to heal our nation of so many different problems. And he wants to start here in Arlington with STSA. 
and then he wants it to expand and expand and expand. He wants to branch out and reach out. And I believe that God's going to do big things. I told you from the start of this church, this church is not a church, it's a tidal wave. Tidal wave starts out way over there. It's a small little wave, and eventually it messes stuff up. And I believe the same thing God wants to do right here. Not because I'm great, not because you're great, but because he's great. And we rely on him to do big things for us. Last thing, I'm going to show you one last verse. And this last verse, and then I'm done. Psalm 147, verse 3 and 5. Remember earlier we talked about all the stars and the billions and the planets? Well, it says that he counts the number of the stars. How cool is that image? That God counts them. He names them all. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. But before you leave this verse, I'm going to show you the verse right before it. This is verse 4 and 5. I'm going to show you verse 3. Verse 4 and 5 says, God is great. Counts the number of stars, calls them by name. You know what verse 3 says? It says, he also heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Our God is both big and cares about small. Our God is so big that he looks at all the planets and he just, all the planets are small in his hand. But our God is also the kind of God who looks at the smallest problem that you have. You say, well, that's too small for God. That's too piddly. God says, no, there's no wound. There's no nothing that I don't care about and that is too small for me because he heals the brokenhearted, he binds their wounds, and he counts the number of stars, calls them all by name. Last time, all together. Faith-filled vision says what? Say it with me. We believe in a big God, and we rely on him to do extraordinary things in our lives. We are not surprised when God does a miracle. We are more surprised when he doesn't. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, you are a big God. We thank you for this reminder today of your bigness and about how really there's nothing that's outside of you. And forgive us, Lord, for our small-mindedness and looking at our problems as if they're bigger than you and complaining about them and, and making them out to be as if they're God and, and, and you're nothing. Forgive us for that, Lord, and give us to have a true faith-filled vision as individuals and also as a church family. Give us to see everything in light of your bigness and not in light of our problems, Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son, with the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.